This is an ABC podcast. Methought I heard a voice cry, sleep no more. Macbeth doth murder sleep. Imagine if your world was full of lines like that all the time, if you actually lived and worked with William Shakespeare. Well, that's what life is like for Peter Evans. Salutations, I'm Michael Cathcart. Welcome to The Stage Show. Peter runs the famous Bell Shakespeare Company. In fact, he's worked there for over 20 years, which means that pretty much no matter what play he works on, it's Shakespeare. And I wonder if that ever gets weird. Does he ever long to put on, I don't know, Oklahoma or the Cherry Orchard? Peter Evans, welcome to The Stage Show. Thank you so much, Michael. Hello. Lovely to have you here. I think Macbeth, which you're about to present for Bell Shakespeare, was the very first play you directed on your own for Bell. I've been looking at your CV and it looks to me as though that's what you did in 1997. Oh, well done. That's right. That's right. It was my first gig, uh, my first professional gig out of um, drama school. John Bell offered me... um, uh, I think we decided on Macbeth together, but what's important about that production was it was the um, the company had been going about six years at the time, and always John's mission was that it should be truly national. And so at that time, it had done capital cities, uh, most of the capital cities in Australia with uh, its main stage productions, and its education was becoming more and more national. But this production he offered me was an eight-person Macbeth, and we took it into regional towns. And so we ended up doing 30 or 35 um, regional towns. And and really for John, this was the the completion of what he set up. Bell Shakespeare, of course, being a, a boy from Maitland um, and his relationship with Shakespeare was a, was a teacher taking him to see Olivier's movie of Henry V. And so he wanted to take live Shakespeare everywhere in Australia. So I'm not sure I realised it at the time as a young and very ambitious theatre director, but I'm very proud of the that, that, that my introduction was actually such a, a vital cog yeah. in the Bell Shakespeare story. Well, Macbeth is a great play to take around to people who are not familiar with Shakespeare because it's such an easy play to enjoy and an easy play to get. Yes. And although it's a kind of moral fable, the moral fable is it's not a good idea to kill a king, which yeah. I, I think we're all on side with, really. The, the audience <laughs> also enjoys the play because it is kind of gothic and it also appeals to the side of us that wants to watch murder mysteries and thrillers, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the brilliance is that, is that the the person we're following, the person who's talking to us through soliloquy is the murderer. And it's about a husband and wife murdering team. Um, so it's exhilarating. And I think it's exhilarating for about half the play. And, and Shakespeare's very good at this. We're kind of on their side, weirdly. Um, I take your point. I don't think, I think we all recognise that killing kings is a bad idea. But somehow we're swept along like it's a the suspense leading the first half leading up to the murder, um, and then the second half is really the fallout from that murder. At which point we see him grow increasingly into a mad tyrant, um, and and the brilliance of Shakespeare is by by getting us on side, he then makes us complicit, and then he makes us feel guilty for where we've been. Uh, and, and I think this goes to the heart of, of, of doing these kinds of tragedies and, and the, what the Greeks would, would suggest is the catharsis in watching this kind of work um, is that we're taken on a, a, a moral journey ourselves. So how many times have you directed 
this play? What, which, which number is this in your... So this is number three. <laughs> number three. This right. is number three. I'm not including an education one I did when I was about 19 for the New Zealand Puppet Theatre. I don't know if you heard about that production, Michael. I don't think you interviewed me for that you one. You kept that a guilty secret until this moment. <laughs> I'm seeing the three which are double, double, toilet, trouble. Ow! Fire burn! Cauldron bubble. Well, mock as you may, Michael, but in fact, in fact it was a it was a it was a key piece of work. I'm sure it was. Um, it was actually a half mask piece of work. We did it in half mask and, and taking it into schools. I, it was an incredible introduction to to performing for me. And and hence, when I came back to Bell Shakespeare in a full time capacity, its education program was so appealing to me because because really I've been associated with taking work into schools ever since I I had the idea of um, being a director. So let's see what you've made of Macbeth this time. We're joined now by Hazem Shamas, who plays Macbeth. Good day, Hazem. Hi, Michael. Nice to have you here. So let's set this up. At the start of the play, Macbeth and his mate Banquo are returning home victorious from battle. And in a wild storm, there's this famous scene where they meet the three witches who tell Macbeth that he's destined to be a king hereafter. So Macbeth and his wife, Lady Macbeth, decide to help this prophecy along by murdering the king. And uh, in this scene we're about to hear, King Duncan is enjoying a lavish dinner, complete with musicians, at Macbeth's castle, with no idea, of course, that the Macbeths are planning to slaughter him. And Macbeth, recklessly, I guess, leaves the table and goes outside to think. If it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success, that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here, but here, upon this bank and shoal of time, we jump the life to come. But in these cases, we still have judgment here that we but teach bloody instructions, which being taught return to plague the inventor. This even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poisoned chalice to our own lips. He's here in double trust, first as I am his kinsman and his subject, strong both against the deed, then as his host who should, against the murderer, shut the door, not bear the knife myself. Besides, this Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek, hath been so clear in his great office, that his virtues will plead like angels, trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off, and pity like a naked newborn babe striding the blast, or heaven's cherubim, horsed upon the sightless couriers of the air, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye, the tears shall drown the wind. I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition, which overleaps itself and falls on the other. Wow, that was fantastic. I'm hearing for the first time, actually, in that the way you've done that speech, that he knows that damnation is coming his way. That's part of what he's saying there, isn't it? Don't you think? I think that's right. I, th- I think that's 
I think that at the crux of the brilliance of the play and of the character's imagination is that he lays out exactly what's going to happen. His, his fear, his fear and guilt even at imagining what is going to happen, not, not just the judgment of his peers, but an existential judgment, a divine judgment, will lead to a madness. Yeah, it's all there in that first soliloquy, isn't it? And has him every, every soliloquy, I guess, as I'm thinking about it, in every soliloquy, he's sharing his doubt, isn't he? He's he's going into those places of madness and of, oh, what is it, spiritual distress. You know, is this a dagger I see before me? That's the same thing. And that's, that's only a few minutes away, that soliloquy. That comes from his his deep morality or an understanding of his morality. Like Hugh Macbeth is a deeply moral person who who cares and thinks deeply and that's the kind of depths of his wrangling with... I guess, the immorality of what his actions are doing to his deep personal morality and knowing the good and the bad and the, the damnation that comes from the neglect of one or the other. Oh, that's good. That's good, Hasim. So is that what you're drawing on, that he's a deeply moral man who's being corrupted by what he's embarked upon? I think so, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I find it uh, as a study on mental health, which has to come from a very, very deep-seated guilt. And, and to kind of think about that leading to a madness has to come from your sense of, of hurt and care in the world. And when you say that, is that, does that mean that you're drawing that personally? I'm looking for Hazem now. What, what do you... What are you drawing on to, to find this extreme character? Because, you know, none of us is a king killer. <laughs> what, what can you work with? Look, I, I, I can only kind of, yeah, I, th- I think my responsibility is to bring my person to this, not, not, not so much put it in the way of it, but kind of fuel, fuel the truth that, you know, this story explores. And my, you know, I, I, like I find myself thinking about my father who had a, a you know, quite a dramatic nervous breakdown midlife you know he was you know and I'm, I'm fast approaching 50 and and around that time I I, I, I kind of remember his downfall and his fall into a, a real kind of debilitating depression and I think a lot of that came from his guilt which is for me a really familiar migrant story in so much that he came to Australia leaving so much behind and breaking the hearts of so many people, pursuing his ambition and his, his aspirations. And I think he kind of bore a lot of, a lot of guilt and a lot of pain. So when things didn't go so well, you know, those deep-seated sorrows of his that, that he harboured undid him and broke him. And I, I find myself thinking about that story a lot while going through the Macbeth story. What country had he come from, Hazem? Uh, we were Palestinians born in the colonial state of Israel. Right. So what an astonishing intersection of experience you're drawing on there. You've got your Palestinian story, a Scottish story, an English playwright performing in Australia. I mean, that's a universal cocktail. Yeah. 
Brought to you by Bell Shakespeare. <laughs> well, Hazem, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a joy to meet you and fantastic to hear you read. Thank you so much. Hazem Shamas, he's playing Macbeth and we're talking about Bell Shakespeare's new production of Macbeth with artistic director Peter Evans. Tell us about uh, Shamas now that he's gone and Jessica Tovey, who's playing Lady Macbeth. Why did you cast those two? Well, Hazem, we first worked together actually on the last time I directed the play. So Haz played Ross for us in a production I did with Dan Spielman and Kate Mulvaney back in 2012. And uh, I just, you know, fell in love with him. And since then, he's done Merchant of Venice for us. He he was in Romeo and Juliet, played the friar. Uh, He's done a comedy of errors. He was in John's last um, Shakespeare that he directed as artistic director, The Tempest. So we've had a long, long relationship. Um, And during the pandemic, uh, we were trying to keep as many actors on the books as possible. And so we did quite a lot of development, either on Zoom or when we weren't in lockdown, but we couldn't... um, tour um, in the room. And so we, we looked at a lot of plays that I'm interested in developing and did a lot of dramaturgical work. And Hazen was part of that. And, and one of the things we looked at is that we started to look at Macbeth, you know, now, how's it changed in the last 10 years and what might be interesting. Um, and Haz, when we we're having a cup of tea, actually said to me, you know, I feel like now's the time I should be saying to you, this is my role, I really want to do it. But I have to say to you, I'm a little frightened of it. I'm not sure that I want to go there. And I I guess I thought, well, that sounds perfect to me. I think I'm going to make you. Uh, And so we started a discussion and we've been working for the last year uh, leading into rehearsals to to do it. I'm particularly attracted to Hazem for this role because Hazem can be very alpha. He has a a good kind of warrior masculinity, which no doubt Macbeth is, but also has him as a poet uh, and and is obsessed with poetry. Uh, And we've had lots of talks over the years about poetry and you really have to be able to do both those things. Mm. You you have to be credible uh, as the greatest warrior in medieval Scotland, but also you have to understand his imagination and what is quite difficult and knotty poetry that he has to explore. Peter, it's a rare quality in male actors, I reckon, this ability to be dangerous. And I I think it's partly because actors are sort of basically, you know, most of them are kind of nice, creative, caring sort of people. But but you actually do want your lead actor to be capable of danger. And you think about all those, you know, charismatic American movie stars, they've got Mm -hmm. that ability to, you know, get the glint of the tiger in their eye, that, that, Mm -hmm. that killer sense. And a lot of, you know, it's hard to think of Australian actors. Oh, Steve Bisley's got it. You know, when Steve Bisley yeah. carries a gun, he looks like a man who knows how to use a weapon. He's, exactly. It's, it's a powerful, powerful resource to have. I think it is. In fact, Australians are probably better. I think we've seen some success of our male actors um, in America particularly yep. um, because they they, ha- they have a touch of that. Uh, but I think that's astute, Michael. I think that's right. It's, it's, uh, it's rare to get both, and some of these plays do demand it. I mean, I've been exploring masculinity a lot with female actors uh, over the years and, and certainly with Richard III and with Hamlet. Uh, it's been very interesting exploring masculinity. Macbeth, I, I felt with, with Hazem, uh, Shakespeare sets up that this man has no fear of violence 
and he has no squeamishness about blood. Shakespeare goes out of his way in the first three scenes of the play to set up that this person is bloodthirsty. Well, he's a general. That, that's right. But, but he, you know, the wonderful description at the start of him unseeming someone from the nave to the chops. So he doesn't only kill people, but he eviscerates them. Now, Shakespeare does that on purpose because then when he thinks about murder as opposed to war, he falls apart. He has a panic attack in his first soliloquy and, and describes this his, his heart knocking against his ribs. Um, and so Shakespeare makes clear the difference between killing and murder and that that is a line and that changes his relationship to blood. And the play is famously um, steeped in blood, mm. physical and, and, and metaphorically. Yeah, our damn uh, spot. Of course. And so, and so we see him become, and Lady Macbeth, completely haunted by the blood that they have um, spilt. But it's Lady Macbeth, isn't it, who, who pushes the ground rules of what it means to be a man worthy of power, who's pushing manliness in to murder. I I mean, in, in the scene that follows the soliloquy we just heard, Lady Macbeth comes out, confronts Macbeth and says, what the hell are you doing out here? You should be inside where Duncan's having, mm-hmm. having you know, dinner. He'll suspect something. Mm-hmm. And then she gives this kind of rant in which she says, oh, what kind of man are you? I wish I were a man. And then he, she says that terrifying speech. She ends by saying, I have given suck. That is, I've, you know, I've, I, I, I've breastfed a child. I have given suck and know how tender it is to love the babe that milk me, I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out had I sworn as you have done to this. Marvellous, Michael, marvellous. Can I have the role? Well, I think you should come and see me. Too old for the part, probably. Possibly that might be the only impediment. <laughs> but the key, the key bit actually, like, you, you're right, and it's an extraordinary image, but the key point um, of what you just read is, if I had sworn, as, as you have done to this. So the, the brilliance of what Lady Macbeth does in that scene is she replaces not doing the murder with loyalty to the marriage. It's, it's an incredible piece of psychology. She says, you promised me And the fact that you're not going to go through with it is actually because you don't love me and you don't respect the marriage. By twisting it, suddenly she's changed the ground on which they're arguing. So the manliness is not just associated with, are you man enough to kill, but are you man enough to be my husband? Extraordinary. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. You were saying before there was a moment when Macbeth loses the support of the audience, when the audience realises just how terrifying Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are and it ceases to be kind of, you know, midsummer murders fun. It becomes Mm. terrifying. Uh, I've just noticed in the last day or two that the same thing actually happens in Richard III, which you, as you say, you directed Kate Mulvaney as Richard III back in 2017, had a huge hit with that. The same thing happens, doesn't it? That, that, that you've got a king who's killing everybody in order to secure power or he, he's maintaining his power. And there is a moment when the king sends out thugs to kill their rivals' children. They both mm-hmm. do that. Macbeth does that and Richard III does that. And that's the moment when the audience goes, oh, oh too much. You are really horrendous. That's exactly right. It, it's a, it almost mirrors it exactly. And, it, and of course, um, Richard III's written 10 years earlier than Macbeth. And we see that throughout his work is that he learns from 
previous plays. And clearly, I think he has that in mind. I, he, he would have stood in the globe and seen what works in Richard III. And by all reports, Richard was still very successful on the globe stage when he was writing Macbeth. It's the, it's the play that was reprinted the most during his lifetime. And he would stand in the theatre and clearly learn from it. And I think you, you've identified something that he would have seen is that at a certain point, there's an act that the tyrant commits where the audience turns and suddenly the play changes in front of us and, and our relationship mm. with the protagonist changes. Peter, you said that Richard III was the most printed play during Shakespeare's career. I think Macbeth was not printed at all. Is this right? It, it's only because we have something called the first folio that we have Macbeth to perform. That's right. And so the collected works of Shakespeare's, what we call the, the first folio, was printed eight years after he died. Um, his theatre company put it together. It seems that Shakespeare didn't have any desire to collect his works during his lifetime. However, if his, his colleagues hadn't put together the first folio, which is in um, 1623, so this is 400 years since the publishing of that book, which is one of the reasons we're doing Macbeth this year. And we're also doing Twelfth Night, which I know is a favourite of yours, Michael. That is another play that we only have because they put these together. So, in fact, of the 36 plays in the collected works, 18 of them we would not have a copy of mm. if they hadn't put together this book. So it's a ve very important um, publication. No Tempest, no Anthony and Cleopatra. Yes. No Macbeth. No, Macbeth. Amazing, isn't it? You're on the stage show with Michael Cathcart, where we're meeting the artistic director of Bill Shakespeare, Peter Evans. Pete, you grew up in beautiful Christchurch in New Zealand, just a lovely town. Um, was theatre part of your childhood world? It was. My parents uh, took me to... We had one theatre company, professional theatre company in Christchurch, and a very successful, um, very well supported still to this day called the Court Theatre. And my parents took me there um, a lot. And, and in fact, I do, I, my, one of my earliest memories was they took me to something that was probably not appropriate, uh, which was a Greg McGee play. Um, some of your listeners may know New Zealand theatre, and it was called Foreskin's Lament, which is quite famous New Zealand play from the early 19th late 70s, early 80s, which is about rugby. Uh, and it had lots of men in a changing room, lots of nudity and terrible language. And we were pretty young when they took us. And I remember my parents getting in quite a lot of trouble for, for taking us. Their friends saw us in the theatre and didn't think it was appropriate. But it was very influential on me. I, I, was, I just thought it was incredible. I'd never seen anything like it. So those are splendidly controversial beginnings for an acting career. Um, then you went off to uni. You went to the University of Auckland. What were you looking for? There were you were you on the hunt for theatre there? Well, I didn't think that there was a career in theatre, and very few people at the time in the in the eighties, or only a hand, maybe three people who were probably directing theatre full time and making a, a life out of it. So I don't think it was in my consciousness, and that's been very influential with me and Bell Shakespeare. A lot of the work we do in regional um, towns is about um, taking theatre or offering scholarships for to kind of widen um, people's horizons. Because I, I experienced that. 
that. And so it wasn't really until I was at university that I started to meet people who were trying to make a go of it. And the idea of having a life in the theatre was opened to me. And I, of course, was acting and, and, and I'd been quite a good schoolboy actor and, and was acting at university. However, I realised very quickly that I was no actor. Uh, I, I, I stood outside myself. I was always looking at myself. It was not a comfortable experience, but I loved being in the room. I loved, I loved the process of making theatre. Um, and so I, I started to talk like a director and, and was lucky enough um, at the age of 19 at the, at the university theatre workshop to be asked to, to take on a production. And, and I remember very clearly on that first morning feeling like this, this is me. I, this is my yeah, vocation. Yeah. Actually, the first gathering of the cast for the director is kind of opening night. Yes. I had a, I had a slightly older um, director, he must have been 26 or something, say to me, you know, you never know what being a director is until that first morning when everyone looks at you to know what's next. <laughs> and I've, I've never forgotten that. Like, yeah. I, I think that's kind of a leadership thing in general. Yeah. But certainly as a director, you can't teach that and you can't simulate it until you're actually the boss and everyone looks to you to come up with the next idea, um, you, you just don't know what it feels like. Um, I clearly was quite comfortable or, or, or young and arrogant enough to think that I'd be okay. What was that first work that you were young and arrogant enough to direct? <laughs> well, can you believe it? It was the Duchess of Melfi. <laughs> Good. God. I know. Isn't that ridiculous? It's a, um, a Webster play who was a Shakespeare contemporary just after Shakespeare, uh, about 10 years after. And it's a, a Jacobean tragedy, a, a brutal, bloody piece of work. Um, I'm sure I didn't know what I was doing. And much more difficult to do than Shakespeare because the language is weirder. Weirder, weirder. It's a really tricky thing. Uh, who knows? But again, I didn't choose it. The uh, actor who was playing the Duchess, um, I think, saw me as an easy mark and went, I want to play this role and you'll direct me in it. Uh, and I'm very grateful to her because um, it set me on a path. And, and I do, I, 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 kind of, I recommend that actually because I did uh, Much Ado About Nothing when I was 20. Uh, and again, I'm sure I didn't know uh, much of what I was doing, but I think sometimes it's just, just go in the deep end and don't be afraid. And, and then before you know it, you start to work out what, what you're up to. Yeah. I mean, it's sounding as though you've never left the 17th century, but I got to know you when you were an associate director of the Melbourne Theatre Company, where you directed lots of stuff. I mean, your CV is full of contemporary works, and you're a fantastic director of contemporary works, but you've obviously found your, your period, found your moment in life. Um, l let's stay on your life story. You, you, you go to Sydney in your early 20s, you go to NIDA, and then it's at that time... I guess you meet John Bell, is it? How did you connect yeah. up with Bell? Well, this is, so this is again the, the luck that happens in a career. Um, when you're at NIDA, you you used to, I'm not, I'm not sure they still do, but there used to be the Playwrights Conference. They used to happen in Canberra. We always used to stay in the university halls and we would spend two weeks working on new plays. And uh, as students, we went for one week. And, and worked on student plays. And I was assigned Lucy Bell as one of the professional actors that we worked with. And clearly, Lucy thought that, that I was interesting enough because I think she went to Sunday lunch with John and Anna and suggested that maybe he should meet me. So Lucy Bell is John and Anna Bell's daughter. You're working with the daughter of the guy who runs Bill Shakespeare. That's right, that's right. So I get a call at, at, when I'm leaving NIDA 
on my landline, completely out of the blue, from John, inviting me in for a meeting. And he says, Stephen Burkoff is coming out to direct Coriolanus for the Melbourne Festival and for Bell Shakespeare. Would I like to assist? Heavens and- above. So Stephen Burkoff is the kind of wild man of British theatre at that stage. He's, he's yeah. kind of a nut-brown ball of muscle and energy and rage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And as a 25-year-old, you know, 24, 25-year-old was huge for me um, in, the, in, the, in the early 90s. Um, mainly his, you know, most famous for his work in the late 60s and into the 70s, but was is a big star, still a big star, yeah. but certainly was a huge star in the 90s. He had directed his Coriolanus. He had done it himself initially, and then he had just done it in New York with Christopher Walken. And now he was directing it for Bell, um, the same production with John Bell in the lead. So I was the assistant director on that production, was my introduction to the company, and was an amazing experience, incredible experience. And from there, I, I went on to, to direct the, the Macbeth as the, as the regional tour, and I was kind of on my way. But, but as you say, we met because I moved to Melbourne. Um, my partner at the time got work in television in Melbourne, and so we moved to Melbourne and lived there for 14 years. And so my career actually started at the Melbourne Theatre Company mm. and during the two th- early 2000s. So to, to the central question that I posed at the start of this conversation, here you are, you've done all sorts of directing work, contemporary stuff, but lots of stuff from Shakespeare's period as well. Since 2010, you've been directing with Bell Shakespeare pretty much full time. In 2016, you you took over as artistic director. So that's a long time to be working exclusively on Shakespeare. Does that ever get weird? Do you ever think, I really need to reconnect with my own time? That's such an interesting question. I moved to Bell and I left Melbourne and I didn't want to leave Melbourne. I, I loved it and I and I, I loved the city and I, I loved um, all, all the people and I loved being at Melbourne Theatre Company and the, and the whole scene in Melbourne I loved. But the offer John was giving me felt, um, it's just an offer you can't refuse, isn't it? But I was just turned 40 and I was clearly having, you know, a moment. Um, And I hadn't done Shakespeare for a few years. And I realised I would probably have to give up doing the the new Australian work, which I loved. However, I was ready to to take on a challenge. And the thing about directing Shakespeare is that the challenge is endless. it's It's an almost impossible task. What the plays demand of you as a director is so large. And I loved the idea of of having to think like that. And I loved the project of it, that I would embark on a deep dive for I, 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 didn't, I don't know how long I thought, but I thought it would be at least 10 to 15 years into this work. And I just, I liked the taste of that. I thought that that, that feels to me like a, a, a life well lived. A- and obviously that the company also appealed to me and, and, and its, its deep roots and education appealed to me. I, I, you and I have, have spoken in, in previous interviews over the years about the importance of teachers and, and, and how, you know, teachers were very important to us when we were at, at high school. And, and, and I think I had that in the back of my head too, is that, that it was life-changing for me and, and I wanted to be part of that. I want to be part of those life-changing experiences for young people. And, and, I, and I think that, I think this work 
can do that. Mm. I think it's possible with this work. And Pete, what do you know now about directing Shakespeare, Shakespeare in Australia, which you didn't know when you started out? What's the main lesson you think you've learned? Well, look, people are very proprietorial about Shakespeare and you learn that. It's great strength and the great um, strength the company has is that people have an enormous ownership over it. Um, people have very strong opinions about what their Shakespeare is. And, 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 that, and that's really what his writing invites, is that you can, anyone can enter it with their own experience and really can find questions in it that can appeal to you at any age or in any circumstance. Um, we were just listening to Hazem um, um, talk about um, his way into the character, and, and in fact, um, bringing a migrant experience to it. Like, it, like it's a, the plays are so open ended, um, but that also means that you and me, as, a, as, as an artistic director, run into an awful lot of um, <laughs> an awful lot of people who are at various stages displeased um, with what you're making, and so depending on what side of bed I get out of, I find that energizing and completely crushing. And again, it's it's kind of a wonderful way to spend your life because I'm in a constant conversation with the audience and myself and the actors about the meanings of these works and the meanings change. So to bring it back to our present production, my interest in Shakespeare has actually become more political. I've become more and more interested in the political systems that Shakespeare is exploring. He famously starts his career and makes his name writing English history plays. And and then from the history plays, he's writing comedies and then these series of tragedies, but they're all political, whether they're in Rome or they're in Scotland um, or they're in Venice. They're all political plays. And, and as I get older, I become more and more interested in the political dimension of these works. Peter Evans, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a joy to talk to you and we'll look forward to seeing your very political Macbeth. Thank you, Michael. Lovely to talk to you. And Peter Evans runs Bell Shakespeare. This year, their program kicks off, yes, with Macbeth, starring Hazem Shamas, directed by Peter himself. So you can catch them at the Opera House in Sydney until the 2nd of April. Then they're off to Canberra, that's in mid-April, and then on to Arts Centre Melbourne until the 14th of May. This is The Stage Show. I'm Michael Cathcart. Well, as Peter and I were saying, the script of Macbeth has survived thanks solely to one book. And this book is known as The First Folio, which I think you'll agree is a pretty unsexy name. In fact, the actual title of the book is much more fun. It's Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories and Tragedies, published according to the true original, with two L's, the true original copies. It was published in London in 1623, and that is exactly 400 years ago. So what is this first folio? How did it come to be? And how accurate a record is it of Shakespeare's plays as they were actually performed? Emma Smith should know because she's Professor of Shakespeare Studies at the University of Oxford, and her many publications include the very fine book, The Making of Shakespeare's First Folio. Emma, welcome from Oxford. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to have you here. So just to recap for the rest of us, this book is 
is massive. It's, 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 the pages, the folio pages are roughly the size of an A4 sheet. It was published seven years after Shakespeare died. It contains 36 plays. It's the sole version of 18 plays, ones we know really well, Macbeth, The Tempest, Twelfth Night, Anthony and Cleopatra, plays of that fame. How was this collection put together? It's an absolutely great question and we don't completely know. When Shakespeare dies in 1616, he leaves in his will money for mourning rings to three members of his acting company, the King's Men. Rings one wears in memory of someone who has died. To express grief. To express grief, quite. And two of those fellow actors, John Hemming and Henry Condell, the third Richard Burbage dies in the interim. But John and Henry are the two men who sign the letter at the beginning of the first folio, talking about how they've put it together in memory of their dead friend and, and colleague. So there's most definitely, I think, a personal labour of love element to this book. This is gathering together a monument to a loved friend and colleague. It must have been a massive task. I, 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 when, when you realise that these two guys, John and Henry, these actors, got together to, to draw together the scripts of Shakespeare's plays and put them into this huge book, they must have really cared about this man and the work he'd produced. I think they absolutely must have cared about him, and, and you're absolutely right. Uh, it was a big job, and a job for which they were not particularly well qualified. They were men of the theatre. They didn't have huge experience, so far as we know, of books or book production. Neither of them has any books in their own will, so they, they don't seem to be bookish kind of kind of guys. They're, they're theatre men. So it's a huge ask. And they're gathering together, as you said in your introduction, uh, a whole lot of manuscripts, so handwritten plays that have never been published, as well as some plays which have been in these individual sort of pamphlet-type book publications, the rights to which are owned by other publishers. So there's a big job of collation, of editing, of negotiation, which is partly them and partly their publishing partners, the printers, William and Isaac Jaggard, and the, the sort of publisher supremo, who's a man called Edward Blunt. And was there money in this? Well, there must have been some money in it. Book production at this time is an expensive investment because of paper. So for some reason, England does not produce print quality paper. So it's all imported. It's imported from France. And obviously, if you think about we're so used to print on demand and, and, and stuff, you know, we think you can sort of manage your number of copies, can't you, quite easily. But there they've got to make a judgment. We're setting up the type. How many pages are we going to, you know, how many copies are we going to run off? We don't exactly know, but we think they probably did about 750. And that's an investment for the syndicate who put it together, which probably takes quite a while to come into profit. It probably does in the end because they produce a second edition nine years later. And that must suggest that it's sold out by them. But that doesn't, to, to me, suggest it flies off the shelves. And we've got some other books comparable books of the same period that go into multiple editions during that time, so look as if they were more popular. So uh, my sense is that this is a book which is building an audience rather than responding to it. It's sort of trying to establish the demand for Shakespeare at the same time as it's kind of meeting that demand, and that's quite a tricky commercial spot to be in. Mm. So how authoritative is this? I suppose the question is, how sure are we that it represents what the actors actually said 
on the stage. I mean, they they say it's published according to true original copies. So I guess that means that they're the copies. I guess means scripts. But to what extent have those scripts been edited or improved or tidied up for publication? We don't know how much they've been tidied up for publication, but they probably have been tidied up or extended for later performance. So if we take Macbeth, for instance, that you were just talking about, the folio text of that play, the one printed copy, comes out perhaps 15, 16, 17 years after it was first performed. It's been performed again in the interim, and it's almost certain to have been updated in that time. So, for example, with Macbeth, we know that there are some extra songs for the witches that seem to have been put in by another playwright. And that looks as if it's a way of kind of um, rebooting the play, uh, giving it a fresh kind of coat of paint, uh, putting it out again, not in exactly the same form as you've seen it before. And that's not unfamiliar to anybody who works in the theatre. We know that play scripts are mobile. You wouldn't stick absolutely to every single letter of it. If you were reviving it, you'd have some new jokes. You'd have some things that you think, hmm, that was okay 10 years ago, but maybe we wouldn't go there right now. You know, lots of changes in ideas about Scotland uh, from when James first comes to the throne in England in 1603 to, you know, the time of the first folio. So I think these are texts which have undergone all kinds of practical changes. What for me they haven't completely had is the polish off that you would expect. You would expect there to be a whole army of people, you know, copy editing, checking, making sure it's all presented nicely. That really doesn't seem to have happened. So the first folio is a sort of paradox of a book that on the one hand, it's big, as you said, it's monumental, it's authoritative in that it's the only text for these plays. And it's also full of errors and full of mistakes and full of, you know, dropped letters and page numbers that, that go nowhere and, and, you know, things like that. So it's a, it's human and, and uh, full of errors yeah. as well as uh, magisterial. And the conventions for each play are different. So sometimes the, the stage directions are printed in one form, sometimes in another. Sometimes the list of characters is not there or very brief, and sometimes it's very extensive. It really is a, a sort of astonishing sort of hodgepodge of different forms. I mean, I wonder what that, what does that imply to you about what the source material is? It, that's a really good way to think about it. So the, the, the source material, the copy that the print workers are, uh, are working from is different in different cases. So sometimes they're working from an already printed text, which is very, very easy to read, easy to manage. It may have some slight editing in manuscript, but that's pretty easy to work with. Sometimes they seem to be working with playhouse scripts and they have different kinds of information, perhaps about props and things that need to be made ready. And, you know, there are different kinds of texts for a different purpose. And sometimes they seem as if they must have been working from quite messy drafts. There are bits and pieces that perhaps should have been crossed out. You know, one bit was actually meant to replace another bit, but both both of them have ended up being being printed. So they're they're struggling, I think, sometimes to make sense of the copy that they've got and to know how to how to present it. But nobody has gone through and copy edited and said, you know, you, you centre these directions here and you haven't done it here, mm. the kind of work that you would get on a modern book. So what sort of scripts were available in the theatre? So when, when the actors are working, would each actor have a complete 
script or would you just have a script with your lines on it and the cue lines, you know, the first and last word that the other people said? Yeah, absolutely. You get the cue script. So your own part, your own speech and the cue that you need to, to listen for. If you remember that all of the scripts that are used in the playhouse are handwritten, so as well as all the other people who put plays on, you've got scribes working in the theatre to produce the written documents that you need to put the play on. What the great mystery about all this material is that much of it, uh, hardly any of it survives. So we have hardly any cue script parts and certainly none from Shakespeare. And we have no Shakespeare manuscripts, but very few manuscripts by any other uh, writer of this period either. So there's a big gap in trying to for us trying to reconstruct what was the kind of paper script that actors would have worked from or that the bookkeeper or stage hands would have worked from in the theatre. Maybe there wasn't a complete script. Maybe there were just cue scripts everywhere because, like, there's no lighting operator, so the lighting operator doesn't need a complete script. Yeah, I think, the, I think you know, if you didn't need the script for these kinds of people, would you bother to produce one since it's such an effort? The one person who does need a, an entire script is actually the censor, the master of the rebels. Ah, right. So yes. there must have been a, a full script that went to him to be signed off. Uh, but certainly there, there are not many copies of these plays in manuscript hanging around and almost none of them have survived. So you're right to say that the first folio is an extraordinary act of preservation. We reckon that we have lost about 80% of the plays that were performed over the Elizabethan and Jacobean period, mostly because they were not printed, including Shakespeare's uh, play that he wrote with John Fletcher called Cardinio, and a play probably called Love's Labours One, which we've got mention of, but no, no texts for. So I think the first folio has done an extraordinary cultural uh, act of preservation. One of the great pleasures of opening up this book, not that I've done it for real, but I have done it online where there are lots of scanned versions and it's it's lovely to kind of, you know, browse through it. Although it's, it's quite wearing. If you're not an expert as you are, Emma, in reading old typeface, it gets pretty exhausting pretty quickly because the conventions are not very familiar and you've got weird spelling and you've got this infuriating uh, practice of creating S's as though they're F's. So, you, yes. I, I mean, you would automatically read them as S's, I know, but I don't. I, I, I wouldn't. No, really? I, I, well, not always. And, this, you know, there's sometimes I think a bit of a, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this here, but there's a song by Ariel in The Tempest, which is, Where the bee sucks, there suck I. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it there. <laughs> As a scholar of Shakespeare, Emma, is there anything lost when we modernise the spelling or the layout of the plays? Is there something about reading, you know, the Shakespearean font that speaks of a kind of authenticity, kind of being there for you? Or are you just like me, you'd rather read the modern spelling? That's a really, really interesting question. I think looking at it in the first folio form is helpful to me because it reminds me it seems an obvious point. It reminds me these plays are more than 400 years old and maybe some of the burden of relevance that we put on them. You know, we want them to do a lot of work for us, don't we? We, we want Shakespeare to be leading the way in, you know, ideas about human identity or equality or kind of liberal thought. We want him to be ahead of the curve and we often perform him 
within those kind of modern conversations, often really, really successfully. But it is good to be reminded these are these are old, old plays and they can't always do that work uh, for us. And one of the things I really love about the first folio is, is the things that aren't in it. And often there are not stage directions in the way that a modern editor would understand that. And, and something I've thought about quite a lot is the end of The Taming of the Shrew, which is a big sort of battle of the sexes comedy. Catherine, who is the shrew of the title, uh, marries this, um, well, depends really how you see it, a kind of maverick, let's say, possibly a very cruel uh, man called Petruchio. And he says that he's tamed her and she gives a long speech saying how she is tamed uh, and how women ought to behave to their men folk. And then she says at the end, I'll put my hand under his foot if that's what he wants. There's no stage direction. We don't know whether he does. And he says, fantastic. Come on. Very, very famous line, not necessarily from Shakespeare. Come on and kiss me, Kate. Again, no stage direction. Irredeemable, I reckon, that scene. Irredeemable. Irredeemable in in its sexism. and Yes, and, yeah. yes. Every time yeah. I come to it, I think, come on, you're, sh- you're letting me down. I think of you as the humanist before humanism was thought of. And then you go and write that crap. Well, that's exactly the burden in a way I'm sort of, I suppose I'm, I'm thinking of, that you're absolutely right. That's one of the reasons we still think Shakespeare is important, that he is able to speak to our own time as clearly as he did to his. Uh, but yeah, there are some moments of uh, misfit, aren't there? You can make her act that scene as though she doesn't believe it, can't you? You can sort of have her look haughty and defiant. You absolutely can. Very famously, the film with um, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, the great, you know, who brought their on-off passionate relationship, you know, off-screen into those performances. And it was all really quite a fiery, erotically charged kind of game between them. And it's them against the world. So it's certainly possible to recuperate it. And maybe the absence of clear directions in the text gives us a bit of space to do that. Do you ever wonder whether Shakespeare's reputation is so dazzling that we're blinded to the virtues of other playwrights of that period? I mean, is there a play by Christopher Marlowe or Middleton or Webster or Johnson or, I don't know, Thomas Decker, which you'd say ranks with Macbeth? What Shakespeare's reputation and afterlife has given us is not only an appreciation of Shakespeare, but an appreciation of the Shakespearean type play, which is organised really around character and around a central plot. And not all plays of the period, not all all the other playwrights were, were interested in that kind of arc. There were more medley sorts of dramas, more um, mingling of comedy and tragedy less interest perhaps in character consistency or more ensemble kind of pieces with lots and lots of characters, not a really dominant one. So I suppose that's a way of saying that Shakespeare's shaped our tastes of what a good play is. And I think the one that comes closest to it now from his own period is probably John Webster's play, The Duchess of Malfi, which gives us what Shakespeare never really does, which is a tragedy organised around a woman's experience rather than a man's. And it's almost certainly the case that the first actor to play the Duchess of Malfi had probably cut their teeth playing Shakespeare's Cleopatra, uh, Hermione in The Winter's Tale, those kinds of uh, big roles for 
mature women characters. But yeah, The Duchess of Malfi, I think, is a pretty splendid play. Also, first in print, coincidentally, in 1623. So if you wanted a really alternative birthday celebration, you'd be saying 400 years since The Duchess of Malfi. Well, there you go. Perhaps we'll run that story later in the year. So you were saying that there are 750 give or take, of these first folios that were actually printed. How many of them are still around? Around 230. Some of them are in bits, and it depends how how big a bit you count as as nearly a full one. But probably about a third of the original print run, including a couple in Australia, the majority now uh, in the USA, but some in Britain and a, a sort of scattering around the rest of the world, although not very many more in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, there's a very lovely one at the State Library of New South Wales that they acquired in 1885 from a donation by a wealthy Sydney cider, which comes in its own lovely box, a carved oak casket, which is actually on display in the library's Shakespeare room. Is that a common thing? There's a really interesting phenomenon in the 19th century, I think, where Shakespeare starts to become a sort of secular scripture, if you like. It's the period of Darwin, it's the period of discovering fossils and thinking, oh, maybe the Bible's not literally true. And one of the things that culture does is to move across a little bit to Shakespeare as a kind of alternative source of wisdom. And you see almost relic-type boxes and, you know, the, the kind of treasure trove boxes that sometimes might have been put round Bibles start to be put round uh, Shakespeare folios. And I think I'm right. I've never seen the uh, one in the Library of New South Wales, which I would absolutely love to, but I think it says that the wood is from the Forest of Arden, the wood that's named in, in, in As You Like It. Emma Smith, it's been a total joy to meet you. Thank you for celebrating the 400th anniversary of the printing of the first folio with us here at The Stage Show. Thank you, Michael. Emma Smith has been telling us about the first folio of Shakespeare's plays published in London, yes, 400 years ago this year. She's Professor of Shakespeare Studies at Oxford, from where she's been speaking to us, and her book is called The Making of Shakespeare's First Folio. It's published by the Bodleian Library in Oxford. And you met her on the stage show with me, Michael Cascard. And our revels now are ended here on the stage show. You can enjoy the show on ABC RN or whenever you like on the ABC Listen app. In fact, if you go to the app and add us to your favourites, you'll be able to find us at the touch of a button. The favourites button is at the bottom of your screen, right there in the middle. The Stage Show is produced in Melbourne on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation by Kim Jurek and I'm Michael Cathcart. Bye now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.